Today, the scripture reading, first reading comes from Hebrews chapter 11, verses 1 through 4. You can follow along with me in your bulletin. Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. For by it, the people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was commended as righteous, God commending him by accepting his gifts. And through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. The second scripture reading comes from the book of Genesis, chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground, and Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. The Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry, and why has your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Cain spoke to Abel, his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground, and from your face I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. Then the Lord said to him, Not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest anyone who found him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. I'm Charles McKnight, the assistant pastor here at Christ Central Church, and I'm happy to see everyone this morning. I do want to say a special Mother's Day welcome and blessing to the mothers here this morning. We're glad to have you here, and I am excited uh, to bring you God's word today. Over the next several weeks, we'll be doing a spinoff sermon series from our regular Hebrew sermon series. 
And this spinoff goes back to the Old Testament stories of all the folks that are listed in Hebrews chapter 11. We call this the great cloud of witnesses. And this morning, we'll jump off this spinoff series by going back to Genesis 4, to the story of the first family of humanity, Adam and Eve, and their sons, Cain and Abel. And what we find in this dramatic narrative is a snapshot of the first ceremonial acts of worship. In a sense, we get a peek inside the first church service with Cain and Abel bringing their worship to the altar of God. And I believe this morning that through this story of the first recorded worship, that the Lord wants to refocus and refine and even revive our minds and hearts around what is central, around what he sees lies at the heart of worship that he receives and is pleasing in his sight. And I think this is a critical question for us to wrestle with and for all of us to be reminded of because it's so easy for us to get caught up in all the fringe details of what goes on here on Sunday mornings. What time do I need to wake up in order to get here on time? What should I wear to worship? Do I have nursery duty today? Will I have time to get some coffee before they take the coffee away? I wonder if they're going to sing the songs I like today. How awkward am I going to feel during the meet and greet portion of worship today? Who's preaching today? Is he going to preach long? Is he going to preach short? We all can get lost in these fringe details of worship that we neglect what truly lies at the heart of worship. And so the question I'm looking forward to exploring with y'all this morning is what is the heart of worship? And so back to the beginning, we travel for our answer, back to the beginning of God's word, the first book of the Bible, the book of Genesis. Our Genesis 4 passage follows immediately from the Genesis 1 through 3 account of the creation and fall of humanity. And our Hebrews 11.3 that's printed in your bulletin points back to Genesis 1 through 2 where we are introduced to God, a creative and all-powerful God who with the boom of nothing but his divine sovereign voice created the earth and everything in it out of nothing and in six days, light and darkness, water and sky, land and plants, the sun, moon, and stars, the animals of the air, the animals of the sea, and the animals of the land. And last, but certainly not least, God made something like him in his own image, in his own likeness, endowed with authority over all his perfect creation. God created man, humanity, Adam and Eve, male and female, as the crown of his perfect creation. And Genesis 2 tells us that when God had completed his perfect creative work, he stepped back and said, this is good. As a matter of fact, this is very good. And God rested from his perfect work on the seventh day. But we know that the earth and all that's in it didn't stay very good for very long, right? God's creation broke bad, in a sense. 
when sin broke in and polluted creation's perfection. Y'all know the story, Genesis 3, Satan in the form of a serpent meets Eve in the Garden of Eden, tempting her to reject God's commands. And what do they do? Adam and Eve eat the forbidden fruit. And the creator God, in both his holiness and in his mercy, meets the first couple to declare to them both his divine judgment and to promise them redemption, redemption that would come through the seed of the woman. But included in his judgment was banishment from the garden. And it's here from outside the garden that we get our first glimpse of life and worship after the fall. Look with me at the beginning of our text, Genesis 4.1. says, now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, <laughs> talking about a son. <laughs> and again, she bore his brother, Abel. It says that Adam and Eve knew each other. That means they had a sexual procreating relationship that resulted in the conception and the birth of the first son of woman, Cain. Cain a name meaning to acquire or to possess, to get. And it's likely a reflection of Mama Eve's excitement that she has, as the verse reads, gotten a man with the help of the Lord. In Genesis 1 through 2, God had created woman from man. And now through the womb of woman, God creates a man, a son named Cain. And verse 2 tells us that Eve had a second son, which she named Abel. Abel, a name meaning fleeting or perishable, weak, is literally translated as vapor or breath. And this story will show that this name ominously anticipates, it, it foreshadows the perishable, the tragic fleeting breath life of Adam and Eve's second son, Abel. And so now the narrator pushes Papa Adam and Mama Eve to the background to focus on the first sons, Cain and Abel, and their relationship with the Lord. So what do you do? As in, what do you do for a living? We adults have all been asked this question probably many times before. Kids, y'all are asked a similar question. What do you want to do when you grow up? This is your generic introductory question at the cocktail party, right? Or at your first organizational meeting, or even the first time you visit a church. What do you do? What's your vocation? What's your job, your nine to five, your hustle? What do you spend most of your time doing outside of eating and sleeping? What do you do? We've all been asked. Well, our text leaps past all the childhood details of the first sons of Eve to answer the cocktail party question, what do Cain and Abel do for a living? Verse 2 tells us that Abel was a keeper of sheep and his brother Cain a worker of the ground. Abel is a shepherd and Cain is a farmer. And that's it. That's all we get. The most basic answer to the most basic cocktail party question is all we get. Abel is a shepherd 
and Cain is a farmer. And if you're like me, instinctively, you want to know more, right? Right? I mean, can I get a hobby? Can a brother get a favorite food or a favorite color or something, right? Give me some character development. We want to know more about these guys. But at this point, our text tells us no more, and therefore, we have to conclude that the answers to our LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter profile page questions aren't critical for the narrator to make his point clear. Abel is a shepherd, and Cain is a farmer. And at this point, that's all, and especially what we need to know. I say especially what we need to know because it's from the fruit of their vocational labors. It's from the product of their work that Cain and Abel come to the altar, to the place of worship, to bring an offering to the Lord God Almighty. And it's here at the altar where we get a glimpse inside the first worship ceremony recorded in Scripture. All the details of the narrative have flowed thus far to this altar. And as we'll see, all the remaining details of this narrative will flow from it. Look back with me at verse 3. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. It says in the course of time. How much time? We don't know. It doesn't say. But it does say that Cain and Abel bring an offering to the Lord. Now, exactly where and how they made their offerings, we also don't know. All we know is that at some point, in some place, both men, Cain and Abel, bring an offering as an act of worship to the Lord. The word here for offering means tribute, as in a gift given by an inferior to a superior, to pay homage, to show respect, to bow down to worship. Cain and Abel stand at the altar of God, the infinite and eternal, unchangeable and all-wise, the all-powerful, holy, just, true, and good God to worship him. Now here, again, the narrator leaves out a bunch of details we probably want to know. Like, who told them to bring an offering? Was this really the first time they brought an offering? Did they make their offerings at the same time, or did they take turns? We don't know. But again, we must conclude that the details that are most necessary for us to get the point of the story have been provided. These two men, Cain and Abel, who themselves are the fruit of the womb of Eve, bring an offering from the fruit of their labors to the Lord in worship. And it's at this point that the narrative now transitions to the Lord's evaluation of these two individual acts of worship. Beginning at verse 4, look back there with me. It says, And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering in Genesis 1-5, I mean 4-5. But for Cain and his offering, he had no regard. The text tells us that the Lord had regard for one offering and no regard for the other. The Lord is pleased. He accepts Abel's act of worship, but he's displeased. He rejects 
Cain's act of worship. But why, right? That's the obvious question. Why? Why did God accept Abel's worship and not Cain's? This, brothers and sisters, is the central question that the narrative pushes us to ask. And I believe the answer to this question reveals to us this morning what truly lies at the heart of God-pleasing worship. So again, why? Why Abel and not Cain's offering? Maybe it's because God just likes shepherds more than he likes farmers. The problem with that is there's just no evidence in the story that suggests that God elevates shepherds over farmers. Well, then he might not elevate one occupation over the other, but maybe he likes one type of offering more than the other. Maybe he's more pleased with animal sacrifices than plant offerings. Well, again, there's just no evidence in the narrative to support that conclusion. So why then is God pleased with Abel's and not Cain's worship? Well, I think clues towards this answer are found in the narrator's careful descriptions of Cain and Abel's offering. The narrator tells us that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground. Cain just brought some fruit, and no greater detail is provided. However, when we get to Abel's offering, the narrator, who's already proven to be pretty stingy on details, goes out of his way to make it clear that Abel brought the best of what he had. What does it say in verse 4? And Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. The firstborn and the fat portions being the best part. So, yes, Cain brings something to the altar, but Abel brings his best. So is that it? Is that the answer? Because Abel brings his best, his offering is accepted, and because Cain doesn't bring his best, his offering is rejected? Is that it? Well, not quite. We're only a quarter of the way through the narrative, so there must be more. The issue must be deeper, and it is. The remainder of this narrative reveals that what was in the hands of these worshipers was simply a mirror, a reflection of the heart they brought in worship. And this, brothers and sisters, is the heart of the matter. The heart of the matter is the heart in worship. Everything else is at best a secondary reflection. Abel's offering of his best is intended to reveal and to teach us that the activities of worship that God finds pleasing are those that spring from true heart-level faith in him. This is why the, the writer of Hebrews, looking back on this narrative, concludes in Hebrews 11.4, as you see printed in your bulletin. Hebrews 11.4, he says that it was what? By what? Faith that Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain. It was by faith. It was a, a heart of undivided confidence, of sold-out trust, of even though I don't fully see it, yet I believe faith. It was by faith, that inner conviction, that gut-level belief that even though my world is crazy, Job ain't working right, family ain't acting right, 
life ain't going right, yet I still believe. I still trust that my God is holy and wholly good and fully deserving of the best worship I got kind of faith that made Abel's worship pleasing to the Lord. Brothers and sisters, worship that God finds pleasing is that which comes from what I would describe as the informed affections of the heart that come from seeing God rightly and rightly loving and trusting what we see. Now understand, it wasn't like God hadn't shown himself to both men. Both Cain and Abel had received a revelation of who God is. Both know God, we could assume, as the creator, right? Both have surely experienced God's wisdom and power and holiness and justice and goodness, both revealed in his creation, revealed in the way that he dealt with their mother and father, Adam and Eve, and even in God's intimate personal engagement with them both. Both have seen God's revelation of himself, but only one trusts and celebrates what he sees. Both have seen, brothers and sisters, but only one savors. Abel's worship is accepted because it erupts from the informed affections of his heart, but not Cain. And the remainder of this narrative aims to put Cain's wicked heart on full display. Again, Cain's lack of true heart worship is first hinted by the fact that Cain simply brings God an offering, but not his best to the altar. It'd be like me on the evening of my anniversary, stopping at the gas station on the way home and picking up a bottle of Sunkiss, a bag of chips, and a dusty card. You know, the one on the little spinning thing by the counter? And walking in the house with the plastic bag like, here you go, baby, happy anniversary, right? That would be wrong, right? And not primarily. I got some amens on that one. That would be wrong. But not primarily because of the gift itself, but because the gift, the offering, is a mirror, a reflection of my lack of proper heart appreciation. When Cain comes to the altar of God Almighty, and offers sun-kiss, bag of chips, dusty card, worship. A superficial, half-hearted token of worship rather than the authentic, wholehearted, reverent worship that an infinite, holy, and good God both demands and deserves. The heart of worship is truly the heart in worship. And the evidence of Cain's jacked-up heart continues to build as the story goes on. Look back with me at verse 5. It says, Genesis 4, 5 reads, But for Cain and his offering, he, God, had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. Instead of responding with repentance, Cain responds with intense anger highlighted by a face fall. Our text says Cain's face fell, meaning that he was despondent, not repentant, but despondent. He was upset, mad at God. He had an attitude. Get the irony. 
Cain was the wrong one, not God. God was just being himself holy. Yet instead of God's holiness melting Cain's cold heart to repentance, Cain's heart grows colder. Again, the point is clear. The heart of worship is the heart in worship. And even after Cain brings to the altar his sun-kissed bag of chips, dusty card, worship, and even after Cain has the nerve to get angry with God for rejecting it, the Lord in his great mercy provides Cain with an even greater revelation of himself, of his worthiness to be worshiped rightly in the way that he mercifully pursues a rebellious Cain. Verse six says, the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry and why has your face fallen? Now the all-knowing God obviously already knows the answer to the question. Yet in his questioning, we're supposed to see God extending an opportunity for Cain to confess, to repent of the sin in his heart. And this is a reminder that God is indeed both holy and merciful and therefore worthy of Cain's full-hearted worship. The Lord continues in verse 7 asking, if you do well, will, will you not be accepted? Now, to clarify, to do well is not a call to better performance. God's not saying to Cain, just do better next time. Rather, the Lord is calling Cain to adopt a disposition, a, a heart posture that allows God to direct his heart towards him in right life and altar worship. And so here again, God presents himself standing both in his holiness, demanding repentance, and standing in his mercy, ready to dispense forgiveness. And the Lord is even so merciful as to remind Cain of the danger of allowing the sin of his heart to go unchecked, saying in verse 7, and if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. In other words, the Lord is saying, Cain, your unrepentant sin is going to jack you up. Satan wants to destroy you, Cain, so repent and allow me to shape your heart for defense. Again, do y'all see how God is showing himself to be amazingly merciful? And what's Cain's response to this crazy mercy? Nothing. Silence. We all know that sometimes what's not said can speak louder than what is said, amen? And we're supposed to see Cain's lack of response to God's pursuing mercy and grace as putting on blast the coldness of Cain's heart towards this holy and merciful God. The heart of worship is truly the heart in worship. And as we see in verse eight, Cain's cold-heartedness towards God spills over into cold-bloodedness towards his brother, Abel. Verse 8, Cain, Cain spoke to his brother, and when they were in the field, Cain rose up against his brother, Abel, and killed him. Cain spoke to his brother. 
Now, we don't know exactly what was said, but coming off this convo, Cain rose up against his brother, it says, and killed him. Here we have humanity's first homicide. And why did Cain kill Abel? Well, the apostle John, reflecting back on this story, actually answers that very question in 1 John chapter 3, verse 12, declaring that Cain murdered his brother Abel because Cain's deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. That means that Cain's cold heart towards God at the altar spills over into jealous rage towards his brother in the field. The heart of the matter is, again, a matter of the heart, and, and Cain's heart is ice cold. Now, clearly, God should smoke this dude, right? That's what we're supposed to be thinking, right? Let's not trip. Cain disrespected God at the altar and pushed aside his extended hand of mercy and grace and murdered Abel. Cain murdered God's image bearer, murdered a righteous man, murdered his own brother. God's got to unleash his fury now, right? That's what we ought to expect. And because that's what we ought to expect, we ought to be blown away by God's doubling down on his mercy and grace towards a cold-hearted Cain. Verse 9 says, Then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? He, Cain, said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? What we see here is that when God doubles down on his mercy by again offering Cain the opportunity to confess his sin, Cain responds by doubling down himself, but doubling down on rebellion and a defiant response, swollen with Eye-rolling sarcasm. Cain snarks back. Have I seen my brother? Nah. What am I? My brother's keeper or something? Y'all, Cain's heart can grow no colder towards the Lord. And so in verses 10 through 12, the Lord responds in disgust and judgment. Starting at verse 10. And the Lord said, what have you done? The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And now you are cursed from the ground, which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it shall no longer yield to you its strength. You shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Cain alienated himself from God at the altar and from his brother. And now God alienates Cain from fertile soil. Cain's going to be a nomad, a man without a home. And I think the narrator would have us to see this as both a, a strong punishment and as a further display, an even greater revelation of God's forbearance God's patience, God's long-suffering, that he still allows Cain to live. This is mercy. And how does Cain respond to this mercy-filled punishment? Does this finally soften Cain's cold heart? Well, in verse 13 through 14, 
It almost seems like it does. Look back there with me. Verse 13. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, you have driven me today away from the ground and from your face. I shall be hidden. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. And whoever finds me will kill me. Is Cain actually showing signs of repentance? Does Cain finally feel guilt for his cold-hearted actions? Sadly, no. Instead of showing true repentance, Cain chooses to wallow in self-pity. And self-pity is not repentance. It's like when I ask my girls if I have to punish them for something. Are you sad right now because you actually feel guilt for what you did? Or are you sad because you got caught and are afraid of the consequences? One is repentance. The other is self-pity. And Cain's ain't repentance. Cain is sad because he's afraid of the consequences. Cain now fears for his life. Get the irony. The murderer now is afraid of being murdered. Cain refused to be his brother's keeper and now fears that no one will keep him. And yet, brothers and sisters, your God and his unfathomable mercy and unthinkable grace promises old ratchet Cain that God himself will be Cain's keeper. Verse 15, then the Lord said to him, not so. If anyone kills Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord put a mark on Cain, lest any who find him should attack him. Then Cain went away from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Two brothers, two acts of worship, one acceptable to the Lord and one not. Because one flowed from the informed affections, a heart that had encountered the holy, just, and good God and loved him. And one didn't. Brothers and sisters, God looks through the hand to the heart through the action to the attitude, through the act of worship to the faith of the worshiper. The heart of worship is truly the heart in worship. So what does all this mean for us, right? Well, I think that it at least means that when we ourselves come to this altar, when we come together for our weekly Sabbath day community worship, what's of central importance is not actually what we bring in our hands, metaphorically speaking, but what we carry in our hearts in worship. Yes, what we do in worship matters. The songs we sing matter. The prayers we pray matter. The sermons we preach and the sacraments that we partake in all matter. But if they don't overflow from a heart that sees God rightly and rightly loves what we see, it ain't worth jack. All the stuff in worship is at best a tool, a means 
an expression of what is of highest importance, which is hearts captivated by the grace of God. The heart of worship is truly the heart in worship. You know, in some ways, Cain and Abel had a revelation of God that was more direct than the way we experience it today. As our narrative portrays during that time, God, God spoke and dealt with humanity in a more dramatic fashion than he does today. Yet as the writer of Hebrews reminds us at the opening of his letter, long ago and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. In these last days, brothers and sisters, God has revealed himself in a way that's far greater, far more clear than what Cain and Abel experience. Abel and all the other true worshipers of the Old Testament, all those that are going to be listed in Hebrews chapter 11 that you're going to hear about over the next several weeks, could only cling by faith to an incomplete picture of God's ultimate plan of salvation promised in the garden. But we, we have the privilege of looking back at God's final revelation of God's final redemptive plan, a plan that sent his very own son, Jesus Christ, to live the perfect life that we could not and to die the death that we deserve on the cross to redeem some raggedy worshiping sinners like us. Set the cross, brothers and sisters, where the climactic revelation of God's holiness and God's unbelievable mercy is finally revealed. So here's your application. Worship. Let us worship. Let us allow the Lord to train our hearts for and through worship. Let us run to every opportunity, every ordinary means that the Lord Jesus has given us through the power of his spirit to chisel and soften and to shape and mold our hearts in and for worship. Let us allow our affections, our emotions, y'all, to be informed and to be displayed in and through God-focused, Christ-centered, Holy Spirit-saturated, gospel-licious worship, singing and praying reading and preaching, listening and confessing and tasting and seeing at the Lord's table the infinite beauties of our triune God in worship each and every Sunday until that great day when every day will be Sunday, when Christ returns and we will finally see him perfectly with perfect hearts that offer perfect worship together in orchestrated, eclectic, heavenly worship. All God's people throughout all of history from every tribe and every tongue and every nation bowing down before the throne of God, singing, holy, 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 are you Lord God Almighty forevermore. Christ central, the heart of worship is the heart in worship. Let the Lord prepare you today for an eternity of worship. Amen. 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 Let us pray.
Heavenly Father, you've reminded us this morning that what you seek primarily are hearts that see you rightly and loves rightly what we see. We confess, Lord, that our hearts are so prone to wander, even and especially sometimes when we gather here on your Sabbath days for worship. We confess that we are unable to worship you rightly outside of your grace. So thank you, Father, for the grace that you have already given to us, grace that has allowed us to a degree to see and savor you. We pray, Lord, that you give us hearts that run to the means you have given us to see you more rightly, that we might rightly love you even more, that we might continue to be prepared by you, Holy Spirit, for an eternity around a throne in worship. Father, finally, I pray for those that don't know you this morning, those who have not yet rightly seen you, that if it be your will that today would be the day that they see and savor you for the first time. Let them know, Lord, that whatever they have allowed to steal your worship ain't worth it. In the name of Christ Jesus, the promised seed of the woman who has redeemed sinners, we pray, amen.